According to a new United Nations report, the devastating impacts of human-caused climate change are happening now. Nearly half of humanity is living in the danger zone now. Many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. The evidence is everywhere. Burning forests in Argentina, massive floods in Bangladesh, drought in Spain. The fact that the number one predictor of whether we agree that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are increasingly serious and even dangerous, has nothing to do with how much we know about science or even how smart we are, but simply where we fall on the political spectrum. Christine, what motivates you about this work? <laughs> Fear is what motivates me, in a way, yes. In this episode, we're navigating a particularly difficult conversation about climate change. Even the words tend to trigger a certain tension. But today, I only plan to lay out the science, atmospheric science, social science, and psychological science. This is not intended to persuade you one way or another. Instead, I hope to provide context and background on what these researchers have found and what it means for each of us. Chris Weiss from earlier this season. He studies weather patterns as an atmospheric scientist. Yeah, we, we get this question of climate change uh, quite a bit. Um, anytime we have a kind of an unusual event, it's, it's kind of, it's difficult uh, because you're talking about very specific short fused events like tornadoes and you're trying to connect it to a decadal type of scale and it's, it's, it's difficult. But the number of tornadoes that's being logged is increasing, but uh, there's also a lot more people out there observing these tornadoes. You have to detrend de the data for those kinds of effects as well. Still taking a hard right now in Hockley County. That's going to hit if it keeps on its current trajectory. We chose him for this episode because he does work in the field, learning more about how weather patterns are changing and why. So in terms of the number of tornadoes, it's not necessarily clear that there's a climatic signal. Um, what is becoming apparent is, is where and when those tornadoes are happening. And, and we're also seeing a lot more of off-season uh, events, uh, the, the event in uh, December. But that's a great example, right? The, the long track tornado that uh, went from Northeast Arkansas all the way up uh, through Central Kentucky is, is tragic. Uh, but yeah, you know, we're not used to talking about sig sig significant tornadoes in, in December, um, you know, in that portion of the country. Kentucky's governor says that the death toll from Friday night's tornadoes is likely to climb, quote, north of 70 victims. Severe weather and storms tore through much of the Midwest, from Texas to the Great Lakes. There's a lot more uh, a lot more tornadoes that are occurring outside of you know the traditional tornado alley. We talked about Dixie Alley a bit ago. There's there's definitely an eastward and northward um, movement to the centroid of where tornadoes are occurring, um, and that that's happening over many years. Uh, so we think that there's there's a, a decent shot that that has something to do with, with with climate change. In some ways, we're seeing weather patterns shift, change what's ordinary for that season or area, like the melting ice caps. But we're also seeing severe weather conditions become extreme in certain areas. 200 scientists from over 60 countries emphasized that our warming of the planet is unleashing damages at a pace and intensity that many nations won't be able to handle. Well, in a warmed world, <laughs> the equator is warming some, the poles are warming a lot. So there's a lot of research going on on this. And as more information becomes known about what these patterns mean, people are developing their own opinions about it. A common rebuttal to certain climate change-related information is that for centuries, the Earth has been naturally cooling and warming itself. That we will see Mother Nature eventually grow out of this phase. 
And people oftentimes take to social media to have these kinds of polarizing conversations. Social media, where voices are amplified and the line often blurs between truth and opinion. Even as a young girl, Ashley Landrum was curious. She was often challenged by her dad to know the source of all information she heard and shared. He would always say things like, says who? So she learned that if she had something to share with him, she needed to know not only the facts, but where they came from. A lesson solidified while watching the Colbert Report as a grad student. That was more than 15 years ago. He did a segment on the word truthiness. It was, of course, a comedy bit. It was sarcastic, but it resonated with her. We are divided between those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. Now, she's a successful associate professor of science communication. She's a media psychologist housed within the College of Media and Communication, focusing her research on how audiences interpret the media. You know, one of the things that I have studied is, you know, how people learn from others as sources of information, which is very much a communication question. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we often don't have the, the background knowledge in any specific field to be able to evaluate the veracity of that information. Ashley is sharp. She's intelligent and an exceptional speaker. Her delivery is calculated, but it's easy to digest. She is the epitome of a great communicator. She tells us that a lot of her research exists in this space of trusting others. Are the experts trustworthy? Are the opinions of others we know trustworthy? How do we see the line? And Instagram followers. So if you want to understand how you do it, you how do we stop information from becoming polarized or the, the environment from becoming polluted with these ideologically entrenched meetings in the first place um, is it, sort of one. And the second sort of big question in our field is how do we then try to depolarize um, you know, an issue of science? So understanding all of these pieces eventually help us answer that bigger question of you know, how do we stop getting these issues of science and policy so politically entangled? Ashley's done a lot of research related to conspiracy theories. And something that she's learned is that people have become increasingly more concerned about being taken advantage of. She believes that this fear is creating a society of people that are more cynical than trusting, even if proven information delivered by experts. Ashley has conversations with a lot of people about what they believe and why. Well, in some of the surveys that we've done, you know, people have said that they actually trust independent reporters over organizations because they see organizations as having, you know, produced content, for example, particularly white men, actually, in one of the studies that we did, and, you know, seeing produced content as being too manufactured, right? So it's it's setting up a specific story. And whereas they see, like, raw footage posted by some, you know, random person with an iPhone um, as, as being, you know, more representative of the truth, but I think people forget that yes, while organizations may have goals or um, you know ideologies, so do individuals, and it's not always money that drives people. Ideology is also a you know a, a pretty big driver. This is important. Social media empowers any person to have a public voice, but the point that Ashley is making here is a really good one. Can we trust the average person to be responsible with their narratives? Do we know that their intention is to share truth and not simply to gain views? They're mad about it, that they're sharing it to say, look at what's going on. This makes me outraged. 
you know, and and it gives traffic, it gives more eyes onto things and, and gives people the sense that this is something that's actually happening out there in the world when it, it could have been a misunderstanding. It might Ashley be says time. that identifying truthfulness is critical. Knowing that what you see on social media should be viewed with discretion. I've been off social media for almost two years, and the most common question that I get from people is, how do you know what's going on in the world? It's true. Social media is one of the most effective tools in delivering information. It has completely transformed our world. It's been a catalyst for a lot of positive growth, and it's helped grow successful businesses, connected long-lost family members or friends, and it keeps you in tune with the people that are important. But it can also be a breeding ground for perpetuating misinformation. Part of depolarizing something is, well, how are people responding to media when they're hearing it? And, you know, what are the effects of the different uh, sources of information on whether or not they're believing something or... You know, are they are people becoming addicted to cable news? And does that, you know, so my next door neighbor in my office is is studying, you know, news addiction and, and you can sort of perseverate and just watch news after news and what kind of effects does that have on you? Ashley and researchers like her have zeroed in on how people interpret information related to climate change based on their political or cultural standing. Actually, climate scientist and Texas Tech professor Catherine Hayhoe talks about this in a 2019 TED Talk. I ended my talk with a hopeful request for any questions. And one hand shot up right away. I looked encouraging, he stood up, and in a loud voice he said, you're a Democrat, aren't you? (laughs) No, I said, I'm Canadian. (laughs) Does a thermometer give us a different answer depending on if we're liberal or conservative? Of course not. Catherine and Ashley are both part of an interdisciplinary group called the Climate Science Center, along with professors and researchers from Texas Tech and other universities across the country. Christina Bradatan is part of it too. She's an assistant professor of sociology. I only learned while being part of this of this group how important it is for the university to have a connection with the, with the community. She's currently living in Virginia collaborating with the U.S. Census Bureau and teaching classes online. Census Bureau is the, let's say, it's a heaven for demographers. So it's where, you know, all the cool stuff, all the cool data are. Demography. That's the study of the changing human population. Right now, she's looking at how climate science contributes to changes in economy, population, and health. She, like Ashley, is fascinated by why information about this topic becomes political in the first place. There are still many communities who don't accept that there is climate change, right? Even when they are, they are, there are lots of, you know, signs and they are, there are many agricultural communities where they suffer because of this, but they don't accept that. Well, what's behind that? How can we help them to understand that it's not a political issue? Really, it's a fact. I mean, it's science. That's it. But how can you do that again when people don't trust the government, don't trust the authorities? Christina says that there are certain groups of people within our country who have a mistrust of the government that impacts their belief in this issue. Her research shows that certain low-income communities or communities with low resources are less likely to believe in the validity of climate change because of where that information is coming from. But beyond that, even if they did believe in climate change, they don't believe they have the power to do anything about it. What can they do? 
what can you know a small community with low resources can do to adapt to climate change where they can access you know um, information but also resources financial resources to adapt to climate change and then there is all this inequality you know that intervenes here like with with communities where there is there is a lot of financial power being able to hire companies to help them and so on but what about the others you know how, how what can they do christina says this is a major part of why the conversation is lopsided there are uh, strong reasons there are you know valid reasons why these people don't trust that there is climate change and we should address that we should not just you know as i said look down to these communities that christina is looking specifically at how events caused by climate change can impact our health. So let's take West Texas, for example. It's dry and hot. You do not need me to tell you that. Some people affectionately have referred to us as the dust coast, you know, like the East Coast and the West Coast. But if those periods of drought become longer, bringing more days with scorching temperatures and no moisture, what could that do to our health? Drought, what's happening is that basically the air becomes very dry. Right. And that impacts people who have already have existing pre-existing condition, you know, conditions with asthma and so on. But it also people who are, you know, older people and children who are more uh, sensitive to, to these problems. So drought, dry air. Earlier this season, we talked about how this region is running out of water. And you already know this, but a big part of that is drought. High temperatures are continuing to play into this. According to the National Weather Service year-end summary, 2011 was the worst drought on record. Rainfall numbers were alarming, a mere 5.87 total inches in the city of Lubbock. It was the driest year ever across the state, too, with an average of only 14.8 inches. Our animals suffered, our people suffered, our crops suffered. The National Weather Service also warns that because of rainfall and heat projections for the summer of 2022, we're bearing a striking resemblance to 2011. If you have um, more days with extreme high, extremely high temperature, basically people are exhausted, they can't work. There are also regulations regarding, you know, whether or not you can work if the temperature goes above a certain uh, threshold. She's also looking at challenges in impoverished countries like Bangladesh and Honduras. She spends a lot of time researching immigration, too, and how climate change affects it. What's happening another with this new layer of climate change? Will more people move from a certain area because, let's say, in, in Honduras, there is a problem with the, you know, coffee plantations and, you know, people from those areas, they basically are losing their, you know, way of living. Will they move to, I don't know, the next larger city in Honduras or will they try to come to the United States, we will see any kind of, you know, impact of climate change on migration. According to a report filed in February by the UK, the impacts of climate change are here. And in some cases, the damage that's been done is irrevocable. People like Ashley and Christina and Chris are committed to this conversation. I like to talk about the scientific process as being like, 
you know, like whittling wood, right? So you just have to keep chipping away at things. It's it's not that you're gonna be you're gonna think one thing and then the totally opposite thing later. It's that you're you're slowly chipping away to to a common understanding of of what's going on and and the like hypothesis space or the, the possibilities start off really broad and then you start narrowing it narrowing it in. You know, there's things about perception that, you know, is there really a, like a truth or, you know, what can be said to be true? But, you know, in, in, in some of these like more shared understandings, we, you know, we kind of have to rely on on others who are expert in those areas or we just will fall apart as a society. We can't do everything on our own. Across town, Erica Kay is keeping things in order. He's the director of the FBRI. That's the Fiber and Biopolymer Research Institute. People like Eric are keenly focused on the things that we've talked about today. Issues like drought, severe storms, or rising temperatures, they all matter in his field. His research focuses on cotton production. Basically around the world, everybody knows Lubbock. Eric and his colleagues are doing some amazing things with cotton. From the beginning of their life as a tiny seed to pioneering ways of reusing cotton waste that might just save our environment. That's coming up next time on Fearless. Fearless is brought to you by the Office of Communications and Marketing. It's hosted by me, Taylor Peters, and co-produced by Allison Firth. Editing and sound design from Thomas Boyd. Fearless is a Texas Tech production. From here, it's possible. Hey guys, it's Taylor. Listen, we are so thankful for your support of Fearless. Thanks for listening and sharing it with your friends. It helps spread the stories of people who are doing truly life-changing work on our campus. So as always, don't forget to like, review, and subscribe anywhere that you get your podcasts.